Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet to Go. We hope you enjoy. Hello, CTSNet community. My name is Brian Mitzman, thoracic surgeon with NYU Langone Health. We're continuing our COVID roundtable series with another important question. What operations are considered elective in the world of thoracic oncology? My guest needs no introduction. Dr. Doug Wood, chair of surgery at the University of Washington, past president of the SCS and international leader in our field. Dr. Wood, thank you for making some time to chat today. Brian, happy to join you. And it looks like we are both in environments outside of our normal offices. <laughs> that is right. So let's jump right in. Uh, in light of the continuing lack of resources, including hospital beds for patients, many institutions are initiating strict policies on booking non-emergent operations, really preparing for the surge of patients that could be coming or are already here. What's the current policy to book non-emergent surgery at the University of Washington right now? Yes, Brian, well, um, as, as you know, Seattle, one of the epicenters, uh, now uh, overshadowed by New York City, but one of the epicenters of coronavirus uh, infection in the, in the United States. And as we have prepared for uh, the, the surge of anticipated patients, we made the decision now two weeks ago to cease elective surgery. Um, and so that uh, ceased on March 16th. So we're now uh, near nearly through two weeks of uh, cessation of elective surgery. And obviously, the challenge there is what's the definition of elective, and I know that's what we're going to be talking more about in a few minutes, but um, at, at least in the broad category, it was uh, considered things that did not need to be done within the next four weeks, and that was kind of the time frame that was put around it. It's an arbitrary time frame, uh, and that procedures that there would be a poorer outcome or harm, potential harm to the patient if it wasn't done within four weeks should proceed. There's some bright lines, some things that obviously fit on the elective side of that and some things that obviously sit on the urgent emergent side of that. But you know, as we're gonna be talking about, there's this gray zone in the middle of urgent cases and, and how to triage them in a time that we are resource limited. Right. And you specifically just use the word triage. You know, there, there is this gray zone of who determines what kind of case can wait four weeks. Has your division of cardiothoracic surgery specifically taken any steps in who decides what cases should get booked? Is there a, a group peer review process at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I'm sure that different systems are going to have different ways of approaching this and maybe different ways, depending on what phase of resource limitation that they have. Currently, um, we moved into this process with it being uh, quite clearly determined by the surgeon. Uh, the surgeon would be 
the arbiter of whether a patient uh, was urgent or, or non-urgent elective. And the reason for this uh, at this stage of, of mildly limited resources, but not at the crisis stage yet, is feeling that the surgeons know best all the multiple factors. They know the disease processes, they know the natural history, they know the individual patient factors that might be uh-huh. other, other decision points that might be geography and might relate to whether they're on multimodality treatment uh, in terms of cancer patients. And so um, we have not created some peer review or processes. The, the anesthesiologist in charge does check with surgeons about their indications. So, but I think the surgeons have highly respected the intent, and because they've highly respected it, the institution has also highly respected surgeon autonomy in making the decisions on behalf of their patients. Okay. So in getting into the main topic of our our interview here, uh, in New York, there's been an official ban on elective surgery from our governor, Governor Cuomo, for the next two weeks. Is oncologic thoracic surgery truly elective? Yeah, so I want to come at that from two points. So first is the point of two weeks. Uh, So the problem that we all have is that although it's easy to make proclamations about, uh, in my healthcare system, we said four weeks, Governor Cuomo says two weeks. I don't think any of us think that two weeks or four weeks that this is going to be over and that somehow we're going to be back to taking care of patients normally. But I, I really think from a pragmatic aspect as, as cancer surgeons and cancer doctors, we're probably thinking more like two to three, maybe even longer month time mm-hmm. frame. And so I think that that has to be a factor in our, uh, in our decisions. Um, and uh, remind me of the, the second part of your question, because you talked about two weeks from Dr. Uh, from uh, Governor <laughs> Cuomo. So just in broad-based terms, before we get into specific examples, uh, is oncologic thoracic surgery elective? Yeah, and... There's now been several groups that have weighed in about cancer surgery. The American College of Surgeons um, uh, have some advice uh, on their website. The Journal of the NCCN has just published something actually from our institution, Mm -hmm. from the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, and essentially state that no, cancer surgery is not elective in general. Um, I actually wrote our own kind of guidance for our practitioners here at the University of Washington, and it was that most cancer surgery has either medical and or psychological urgency and should proceed, uh, at least in the way our current environment is in Seattle. But we also know that there are indolent, slow-growing cancers, obviously in thoracic but in other areas as well, that I think we actually feel very comfortable can wait two, three, four months Mm -hmm. without impacting a patient's outcome. Those are patients that I absolutely would be recommending that they uh, defer surgery uh, for now 
now and that we would revisit them when we get over the peak of this crisis. So let's make this simple for our viewers and talk about some specific examples. A one centimeter stage one adenocarcinoma, can it be postponed for three months? Yeah, so I think um, the answer is yes, uh, it, it can be. Um, I'd say that's probably the one that sits on a gray zone. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, that uh, I actually had a discussion on a patient with a little bit larger tumor, uh, but a shared decision-making discussion with a patient yesterday about the pros and cons of waiting, both in terms of their risk, uh, because they have COPD, uh, risk of uh, getting infected with mm -hmm. COVID-19, their increased risk of major complications or even mortality, as well as the risk of, of waiting. And so there are some in decisions that are individualized, but I think a one centimeter um, solid stage 1A lung cancer mm -hmm. is an example of a case that could be deferred reasonably for two, three months. While we normally wouldn't do this, my institution is actually offering patients SBRT, uh, for these stage one um, uh, lung cancers if the patient and the surgeon don't feel comfortable waiting. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, I guess I'll, I'll make a strong statement and then caveats. My okay. strong statement would be uh, SBRT is clearly inferior to surgery for stage one lung cancer. The radiation oncologists disagree with this, but when we look at uh, the, our own surgical literature of the best patients that are medically similar, uh, the survival of patients treated with surgery is twofold higher than that treated with SBRT. So um, in my own situation, I would recommend that those patients wait and have their surgery in two or three months. Um, but I, the caveat is SBRT is a reasonable alternative to surgery. And if somebody is uncomfortable waiting or simply wants to choose an alternative therapy other, over surgery, then SBRT would be the next best choice. Okay. Let's go into stage two disease. So say it's a two centimeter squamous and there's likely N1 disease on imaging. Most of these patients, we usually recommend going for upfront surgery and then uh, adjuvant chemotherapy afterwards. Should this be a current exception to the ban on elective surgery and should we op be operating on these patients now? Yeah, I'm gonna give you um, two different directions you could go with those patients. Uh, um, so first, as, as I stated a little bit earlier, I wouldn't call cancer surgery elective surgery. Cancer right. surgery is urgent surgery. And so it wouldn't be violating a ban. It would be moving ahead with uh, appropriate indications for urgent surgery. And I would uh, say that a patient with a more intermediate stage cancer, whether it's uh, lung or esophagus or, you know, the other tumors that we deal with, chest wall mm -hmm. uh, tumors, um, um, and maybe certain mediastinal tumors might get into kind of diagnostic and staging aspects in a minute, um, that they should take priority unless one is getting to a highly resource limited environment. Now you might be getting, be at that place in New York City at this point in time, 
We are not there yet in Seattle. Um, and so if we still have hospital beds and we still have uh, capability to use our ORs, I would still use it for those patients. The alternative is that those patients are gonna be people that would get adjuvant therapy after surgery. And so a consideration would be to give them induction therapy that can delay the, the timing of surgery. Uh, so that's gonna be very dependent also on the health system and the patient and ought to be a multidisciplinary decision. Obviously that patient may be a COPD patient who's now gonna get systemic uh, chemotherapy is also going to be at a higher risk of poor outcomes if they do get infected. So mm -hmm. there trade-offs in those decisions yes. that I think um, need to be made in a multidisciplinary way and in shared decision-making with the patient. Yep. And I think a recurrent theme that keeps coming up in our conversation is multidiscipl multidisciplinary and uh, shared decision-making. This is not yeah. a decision for one person to make. That's right. So for stage 3A patients, so say a patient who has obvious N2 disease on PET, these patients normally would get chemoradiation up front and then potentially surgery later, but we would be doing mediastinal staging, whether through an EBUS or mediastinoscopy. Should we be performing EBUSes at this point and you know, risk aerosolizing the virus in a patient who could be positive? Yeah, so that brings up a point that, uh, that relates to some discussions we've had here at the University of Washington in the past week, and we have, just instituted a decision of uh, doing preoperative testing uh, for COVID-19 in all of our patients, including asymptomatic patients. Because of the issue that you bring up of uh, procedures like bronchoscopy and aerosolization and a higher risk to our medical personnel. That decision's not taken like, uh, lightly, but uh, is something we've just instituted. So I would say a patient like this, um, we would test and determine if they were COVID uh, negative. Mm -hmm. If they were COVID negative, um, I would move ahead with uh, kind of our standard plans for how we would stage and treat that patient. If they were COVID positive, I'd actually defer all management until they had gotten through the acute stage of their mm -hmm. illness. Um, and, and while bronchoscopy definitely has some increased risk, I think, if we do the process of testing patients ahead of time, we probably normalize that risk. And we can also consider going old fashioned and doing mediastinoscopy as a way of sampling lymph nodes. So I, I, my main point is I think I would not take shortcuts mm -hmm. in aging patients that have apparent stage 3A disease so that we can still try to stratify them optimally. Um, if we're resource constrained in the operating room, we might make decisions to treat somebody with definitive chemo rads and not include surgery in a patient where our guidelines would say they could choose either algorithm. Um, but I think so far we would still be treating those patients in a multidisciplinary fashion that would include surgery. Great. This next case was, is actually a real case that was discussed on the Robotic Minimally Invasive Thoracic Surgery Community Group, which is on, uh, on Facebook. 
and someone had asked about a completely obstructing right upper lobe endobronchial carcinoid tumor and what the best options in our current era are. Should they perform a sleeve lobectomy now, knowing the risks and potential complications of the sleeve in light of our lack of resources? Continue to just observe the patient despite the symptomatic nature of the lesion and recurrent pneumonias? Or debulk it endobronchially? But again, we run the risk of an aerosolizing procedure and utilizing resources. What do you think? Yeah, that one is fairly straightforward from my point of view mm -hmm. uh, because it, it, I would manage that in a certain way even if we were not in a period of uh, COVID-19 crisis. Mm -hmm. And that would be, uh, I think it's far superior to um, endoscopically relieve obstruction in an mm -hmm. obstructing carcinoid tumor prior to the plans for their definitive resection, meaning letting the mm -hmm. distal airway clear, uh, the post-obstructive pneumonitis clear. Uh, it also better demarcates the proximal and distal boundaries of the tumor. And so I'm an advocate of endobronchial initial management uh, uh, anyway, so I, I still would recommend that. And I would go back to my previous point about testing for COVID-19 prior to the endoscopy. Um, I do, but back to the point of indolent cancers, this is a tumor that once endoscopically palliated, I would defer their definitive surgery until we were at a different resource time and we could manage that patient in a more normal fashion with uh, normal stresses on our hospital resources. And for a typical carcinoid like this, it could be six months to a year before it really causes a problem again if, if debulked properly. Yeah, I guess I'd hope it wouldn't be that long, but, uh, but yes, <laughs> right. I think uh, typical carcinoid, yeah. uh, if we palliate the obstructive component of it, could wait for a prolonged period of yeah. time before they'd really have a worse outcome from not having definitive surgery. Great. So those were the specific examples I had prepared for you, Dr. Wood. Are there any other situations or examples that you've seen that you'd like to discuss with the viewers? No, I think you've given you know, some great in individual examples that give people ideas of what to think about. Um, uh, I'll just make a couple of points that um, first, some of the guidance that we've provided and there's documents that are uh, coming out from uh, the American College of Surgeons and uh, from the Thoracic Outcomes Research Network. Some of that is to help our surgeons um, get their cases done if they're in a place where maybe prematurely um, administrators or uh, anesthesiologists are, are limiting access to the OR and including cancer patients as elective patients. I'd say they are not elective patients. On the other hand, we also have to recognize that we, uh, that many of our systems, mine included, are moving into an a accelerating phase of increased resource limitation where we truly may only manage emergencies. So septic obstructed patients, uh, esophageal perforation, and uh, stenting for, uh, for life-threatening complications and not able to take care of our normal cancer patients. I think we will, it, many of us will go through that phase 
and you may be in that phase now in, in New York. So we, we have to recognize that as well. And lastly, I'll just say, you know, all we can do is provide some guidance. There's no, this is not guidelines. There's not evidence basis behind this. Uh, we cannot point at a series of literature that gives a strong foundation for these decisions. I think we need to be flexible. I think we need to recognize unique local uh, uh, situations in our hospitals and with our patients and be respectful of that and, uh, and try to make the, the best decisions we can for our individual patients, but also respecting the environment and the competition for resources and protection of our workforce that is necessary in this time of uh, crisis relating to coronavirus. I agree. Dr. Wood, thank you so much for your time. To all the healthcare workers on the front lines, thank you for what you're doing and stay safe. Thank you, Dr. Mitzman. Thank you for listening to CTSNet to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.